0: So what's exciting in a way, uh, or positive perhaps, is that the earth will balance. Uh, uh, the The key question is not, are we going to achieve balance, uh, but are we going to achieve it in a way that is positive uh, uh, and and prosperous, or are we going to achieve it in a way that's full of trauma? And right now we're on the trauma path. You know, we're seeing... More ice storms like Texas or the west coast of the US burn down and become a desert. And that's just a few examples, you know, from the flooding recently in, in uh, China to Germany. And we're just going to be seeing more and more of these, which is what I would categorize as trauma. And uh, uh, either the natural disasters and the pressure from the environment will uh, force us into balance, or we can voluntarily choose to move to balance. Uh, uh, and either one of those paths will achieve a balancing act. And I would hope that we can veer to the latter versus the former.
1: Hello, back from a short summer break and ready to keep exploring. Welcome to Impact Adventures, stories from the front lines of changemaking. And we've got a good one today, folks. I'm excited for you to hear the story of today's fabled guest.
2: If you're new to the pod, we're all about sustainable investing here, using the mighty power of the capital markets to make the world a better and more profitable place for all. Our core belief is that with education and intentionality, we can shift the way business is conducted so that it serves all stakeholders and not just shareholders.
1: This season, we're deep diving the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Each episode focuses on one UN SDG, and we like to think of this season like a library. Follow along as we release them or come and go as you prefer listening to episodes that focus on goals that align with your values, or for advisors, those of your clients. So Liz, profit? Yes. Purpose? Right on. Garbage? Yeah. What? Let's go! Today we're talking SDG number 12, Responsible Consumption and Production. This goal is very simple and very important. The UN puts it best. It's about decoupling economic growth from environmental degradation.
2: The targets of the goal aim to, number one, create a 10-year framework that developed countries' lead while taking into account the capabilities of the global south. Two, achieve sustainable management of our natural resources. Three, have global food waste per capita. Four, sustainably manage chemicals and significantly reduce their release into the air, water, and soil. Five, reduce solid waste generation. Six, encourage businesses, especially large ones, to adopt sustainable practices and to report on them. Seven, do the same for governments in public procurement. Eight, educate all people on sustainable development and lifestyles. Nine, support developing countries. Ten, support and improve sustainable tourism. And last but not least, number 11, deal with inefficient fossil fuel subsidies that encourage wasteful consumption and distort the market.
1: You know, I'm going off script a little bit here, but uh, number eight, that's us. That's this podcast right here. Pretty cool stuff. It's estimated that within 30 years, our population will reach 9.6 billion people, and we will need the equivalent of three planets to sustain our current lifestyles. It's a bit funny in a way, uh, given our industry, financial advisors often preach to their clients, don't spend more than you make, live within your means we as humans seem fully incapable of doing just that. Our guest today, Tom Zaki, CEO and founder of TerraCycle and its offshoot company, Loop, has spent his career working to solve this problem of consumption
0: and more importantly for him, waste. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, So I'm Tom, uh, Tom Zaki, the founder and CEO of TerraCycle and Loop. And uh, we are a global waste management company Uh, today operating in over 22 countries. And we focus on uh, uh, moving from linear systems like take, make, waste uh, supply chains into uh, fully circular and then uh, tightening that circle. So focusing on how do we recycle things, how do we make things from recycled materials, and then how do we move to reusable supply chains versus uh, disposable.
2: Before we hear more about his amazing companies, we wanted to get Tom's thoughts on SDG number 12. What does this goal mean to him? and why is it so important?
0: So SDG goal number 12, which is responsible consumption and production, uh, is all about uh, uh, really honoring the materials we extract from the earth. So the backdrop here is that if you think about all the environmental problems we're facing, whether it's uh, deforestation, uh, whether it's that we've eliminated half of the species diversity on the planet, to climate change, to of course the waste problem, they're all linked to, uh, uh, and by far the biggest contributing factor is extraction. Mining, farming, some form of creation of goods, and uh, uh, what we really need to do, and this is what this particular SDG is about, is as we ex- is to reduce our extraction, and by and, and to do so, uh, we can do so by honoring the materials more, allowing them to go around. Whether that means materials uh, after purchase being repaired and refurbished and cleaned and reused, or uh, the raw materials being recycled into new products. All of these circular approaches are what really this SDG is about, which is how do we produce in a responsible way? And then that allows folks to be able to consume in a positive uh, 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 in a positive and sustainable fashion. Well, I think it's perhaps one of the most important because, again, every environmental issue we face, planetary issue, is linked to the act of purchasing things. And we're purchasing things that are very unsustainable uh, and are not leading to balance with the Earth. And so if we want to gain balance without going through a tremendous amount of environmental trauma, you know, uh, more natural disasters and more pressure on the environment, we need to start consuming in ways that are regenerative. And so this is the way consumers can vote for the future they want, uh, but they have to be given the choices. And uh, I'd say this is an incredibly important area of focus. How does TerraCycle help address this issue? So we help organizations, uh, typically brands and retailers, but also uh, uh, industrial facilities and even cities and consumers, help them move uh, from a linear to circular system. So the first thing we try to do is focus on uh, creating recycling solutions for those things that are not traditionally locally recyclable, like dirty diapers or cigarette butts or chip bags and many other things. And the key underlying issue in what makes something recyclable is really whether a garbage company can make money recycling it vis-a-vis the value of the output material. And so, you know, something like collecting and recycling cigarette butts on its own don't make economic sense. So if we can find funding from maybe the manufacturers or the retailers or whomever uh, cares about that particular waste stream, we can effectively set up these supply chains. We then think about how do we help companies start making their products from recycled content so they start becoming a demand source for recycled materials, everything from Uh, 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 garbage at sporting events all the way to ocean waste. And then finally, we've realized that recycling is really not the answer uh, in the long run because it's a solution to the symptom of waste, but not the root cause. And that's where we shift in our newest division loop to thinking about how to enable consumption in reusable uh, methods. Like imagine now you get your Tide laundry detergent or your Haagen-Dazs ice cream. Uh, This is all live examples in beautiful, reusable packaging that when you're done, you just return to the retailer to get a deposit back versus dispose or even recycle.
1: Now, these are major retailers. What was their motivation to partner with a company like Loop? Why buck the conventional supply chain and
0: opt for a new and reusable system? So in Loop, what's really interesting is that first and foremost, the consumer sentiment around wanting things to be more sustainable is has been really growing, I'd say, measurably, starting in 2000, late 2017. Even during COVID, is, it, it's only strengthened. Uh, we were worried that COVID would sort of change the narrative, and it hasn't. Uh, consumers are, are even more increasingly concerned about the environment. And what that is leading to is increasing pressure on lawmakers to pass legislation that is conducive to circular economy. We're seeing that play out quite a bit all over the world. And then that all equals more and more pressure on producers and retailers to have strong circular economy solutions for their packaging. So many uh, retailers and producers have committed that by 2025, their packaging will be compostable, recyclable, or reusable. And um, now the challenge in reuse is that any reusable ecosystem, of course, uh, emanates around a durable vessel, right? Something that is cleaned and refilled. The, the historic models of uh, cleaning and, and refilling have been, you know, perhaps refill stations in stores and retailers struggle with those because they're expensive, they're messy, they require a whole different frame of thinking and, you know, uh, that all equals difficult to scale. Um, there's also the option of uh, selling a consumer a durable container that they keep at home and then perhaps providing them concentrate or large format uh, uh, bulk. Now the challenge there for retailers is that that's more of an online model typically more direct to consumer if anything and can't be expanded to all the different product types that they sell and so what loop provides the retailers is a very scalable and simple way to enable reuse for just about anything they provide Um, it, it makes it feel traditional to the retailer they just order their normal favorite brands but now in durable reusable packaging they sell it to the consumer And uh, there's no other work for the retailer. There's nothing uh, untraditional per se. The consumer at the end is just disposing that container, not into a trash can or a recycling bin, but a Loop reuse uh, bin. And that's the only real difference. And so it's a very convenient way for brands uh, and retailers to be able to participate in reuse and do so in a big way without fundamental change to how they behave.
2: What's really interesting here about Loop is that producers and retailers are able to make a difference in consumption and waste without having to dramatically alter the way in which they operate.
1: Yeah, and actually it does somewhat put the onus on the customer. They do need to take that extra step of returning the used container. We've all grown so accustomed to the incredible ease of, okay, I use this product and now I throw it out in buckets right in the garbage can. And now I have to do this extra step of actually returning this containment vessel, this container. Uh, so what has the end consumer reaction been like?
0: It's been phenomenal. Uh, so the, the the high level answer is consumer resonance has been incredibly high, higher than we expected, which is why in you know two and a half short years from launch, we're already live in five countries and soon six. But it's maybe there's been some interesting unintuitive learning. So if we think about why consumers have been really attracted to Loop is that First and foremost, within the world of reuse, it's the most convenient way to access reuse. Um, You still, yes, to your point, have to take it back to a retailer, but you can take it to any participating retailer, so you can buy your, um, let's say, shampoo in a reusable package at a Tesco in the UK, but then drop it off at a McDonald's, you know? Uh, So it's the most convenient method, and you don't have to clean at home, you don't have to fill yourself. So consumers tend to really like that. Some consumers really resonate with the sustainability benefit of reuse as a sustainability action. And then we're seeing very high resonance from consumers because the packaging is just more beautiful, more higher end materials being used. You know, Your ketchup is now in beautiful glass instead of uh, plastic, or your ice cream is in stainless steel instead of coated paper. And then many consumers also feel like there's a health benefit of uh, packaging not in plastic. And it's those four things that are really driving the adoption that we've seen. And it's been uh, incredibly inspiring.
1: The company Tom and his team have built is pretty amazing, right? And we're going to hear more about it. But for someone who is leading, who is a leading face of the sustainability movement, I was curious if Tom would answer a personal question about his own lifestyle. Is he able to lead a zero waste life or is he a bit like the rest of us? Does
0: he use Amazon? It's a good question and uh, uh, no, I don't. I mean, direct answer, I do not lead a zero waste life. Now, mind you, I don't think it's actually possible to lead a zero waste life. Uh, you may be able to lead a zero waste life in the consumer-facing side of life, like I choose to buy you know, um, an apple, for example, at a grocery store, uh, but that apple's existence was very wasteful. You know, there was uh, a huge amount of garbage produced in the farming environment, agricultural film to fertilizer and pesticide packaging and then the transport process and so on. So first, I want to say um, it is not possible to lead a zero-waste life unless you are completely divorced from humanity in all ways. So even that naked apple in the supermarket is not a zero-waste experience. Now, personally, you know, I, I do use Amazon. Um, I do uh, 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 buy products that, that produce waste. Uh, but what I try to do is shift my consumption as much as I can towards voting for uh, uh, no-waste or lower-waste solutions. So when I shop at a supermarket, I primarily just shop for fruits and vegetables, uh, and, you know, I don't put them in a little bag or anything. You know, uh, uh, at home, we, we, my wife and I and my family tend to buy mostly used, uh, uh, you know, durable objects, you know, like furniture or, 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 or whatever it may be. Now, all of these still contribute to waste, to be very clear, uh, but we can nudge, you know, in the right direction, and hopefully that will encourage organizations, you know, to do, to provide more of those options and less wasteful ones.
2: We really appreciate Tom's candor on this. It could be hard to admit that as a leader of a company working to eliminate the idea of waste, that you yourself still create it. I think that's a really important takeaway, though. What Tom says about shifting his consumption towards lower-waste solutions, we can and should all strive for
1: that. Absolutely. I asked Tom what other lessons we could take from his experiences. What other steps can we all take to try to nudge companies towards being less wasteful and more sustainable?
0: Yeah, I think, look, the only silver bullet in sustainability, the only thing that will fundamentally matter in the end, I don't think is achievable by business. I think it's achievable by us as citizens uh, is consuming less. There's honestly no other fundamental answer uh, that will save the planet. Other than dramatic reduction reduction of the volume of stuff we consume, and just to give you a sense of the statistics, and this has all really come about since 1950, so 70 years old, this hyper consumption. I mean, we used to buy a hundred years ago two apparel items per year, and those would stay as apparel items for 20 years. You know, we mended them, we uh, we uh, changed them as our bodies changed. Today. 70 years later, you know, or 100 years later, we buy 66 apparel items per year and wear them on average three times before disposal, you know, 100 years ago, an average uh, uh, female cosmetic routine was two cosmetic products. Today, it's over a dozen cosmetic products, you know, per day being used. And in Japan, it's over 26. So we are gouging ourselves on, on consumption. I mean, imagine how many socks we have in our uh, dresser drawers today versus our grandparents or how big our homes are. And I could just, you know, keep going. Right. So, or how often we eat meat, you know, like we used to eat meat a hundred years ago, probably once a week. And that would have been special today. We could have it for breakfast, lunch, dinner and do it on a, on a very low, low budget. So. The only answer is consuming less. Now, that is a, a something we have to act as, as citizens because business has a very hard time um, uh, reducing its appetite, right? Uh, now, within business, what we need to do is make sure that we keep offering more circular solutions, more regenerative solutions, you know, those sort of things so consumers can vote on them. But I think those are two independent paths that have to play out.
2: Tom started TerraCycle while at school at Princeton. Famously, it began as a company producing plant food from the byproduct of worms eating and digesting leftover organic products. Over the next two decades, he constantly searched for ways to grow the company by finding solutions to specific waste problems, cigarette butts, plastic chip bags, in-store recycling, personal use recycling, and so on. It's now a $700 million for-profit company working towards unicorn status.
1: But 20 years ago, it was all about our little soil dwelling friends, the worms. I was curious, what was it about worm poop that compelled Tom to drop out of school and invest everything he had into a fledgling business?
0: It honestly wasn't the worm poop itself that you know got me so excited. It was uh, two, two, two sort of major, one turning point and one realization. The turning point was, I fell in love with entrepreneurship at a young age, uh, started my first company when I was 14 and I loved it. Honestly, for egotistical reasons, I felt like it was a path to fame and fortune. And then when I got to a university, one of the first classes I took was, uh, economics 101. And one of the first questions that if not the first question the teacher asked was, what is the purpose of business? And the answer she was looking for was maximize profit to shareholders. And like, That was a turning point for me because I get, I get it. Profit is critically important. I'm pro-profit, but like, that's a very vapid reason to exist, maximize profit, you know? And I felt like profit is more an indicator of health, right? If you're profitable, you're gonna flourish and grow. And if you're not profitable, you're gonna shrink and die. But it's not the reason of being. It would like be like us as humans saying, the reason of being is to have a heartbeat, right? Like, uh, and so I was really searching after this turning point for, A company that or a company idea that put purpose first and could do that purpose at a profit. And then when I saw my friends converting organic waste uh, through worms uh, into worm poop, that's a brilliant fertilizer. I suddenly opened my eyes not to worm poop as much, but to the idea of waste, because it is such an interesting topic filled with all these weird and exciting anomalies. Like we live in a world where it's pretty materialistic. Uh, yet isn't it interesting that everything we own will one day be legal property of a garbage company? And I mean like everything, you know every everything that we possess, from the floor below our feet to the walls, to the windows to our clothing, you know. Um, and for how big of a concept that is, it's fiercely uninnovative. I mean basically people put in a pile or burn it. And so and there's a lot of other anomalies, like garbage has negative raw material value. That's sort of a weird one. Um, and it goes on and on. And so I felt like there was this great playground, purposeful playground to play in and profitable. And worm poop was how we sort of, you know, was the first thing we hung our shingle on.
2: As Tom just mentioned, many entrepreneurs start their companies seeking fortune and glory and to be the next great unicorn. Was that his goal from the beginning? Did he believe that his plant fertilizer business would one day grow to what it is today?
0: It's a good question, right? And I would say my goal, whether it was when we began or even what it is today, 20 years later, noting we don't even do worm poop anymore, is to fundamentally work on, our our North Star is not a monetary North Star, it is how do we eliminate the idea of waste by altogether eliminating it or elevating it that's our north star and to do that in as big a way as possible now because we are a profitable business the more we do that the more we grow our revenue and our profit and you know it's funny our valuation right now you know with our recent financings is just shy of being a unicorn i think next year we will be there but it was never that was never the goal right the goal is maximize our purpose but if your purpose Creates profit; the other part comes with it.
1: TerraCycle and Loop are clearly maximizing their purpose. So, how does one generate revenue through recycling programs?
0: Each of our divisions may be a little different, but in the TerraCycle recycling division, uh, we charge a stakeholder whatever it costs to collect a certain waste stream and process it, minus whatever the results are worth. And that stakeholder could be a manufacturer uh, like a uh, Colgate or a uh, Procter and Gamble. It could be a retailer like a Walmart or an Nespresso boutique. It could be uh, even cities, It even could be individuals. And that's how we make money in that particular division. Our second division is focused on supplying recycled materials. So there we sell recycled material uh, at whatever economics we need on a price per kilo basis. And then uh, our third division loop, which is a reuse platform, there are platform fees. And then we charge effectively for the waste management function of reuse, which is pick up, mixed dirty reusable containers, refund deposits, sort them, store them, clean them. And we charge for that service to our clients, which would be the brands and the retailers. One of the exciting aspects of waste management is uh, uh, as you're dealing with waste, you do have revenue on the inbound and you have revenue on the outbound. Uh, And so you get this sort of double effect, noting like if you're a traditional manufacturer, you get costs on the inbound and revenue on the outbound. So That's sort of an interesting thing about waste is you can make money on both sides.
1: Besides creating a fantastic business model that collects revenue from both the inbound and outbound signs of his industry, TerraCycle is also known for their physical office space. They use only upcycled materials, and they not only allow but welcome graffiti artists to constantly redecorate their building.
0: So all of our offices around the world, now in 22 countries, uh, the interior design uh, rule is every detail every detail must be made from garbage. Uh, So I'm sitting right now in my my office. Uh, My desk is an old door. Uh, My conference table is made from wine barrels and a big refrigerator door. My walls are old soda bottles. My feet are on remnant carpet. Uh, And it just goes on and on. Uh, uh, And it's actually not just an incredibly aesthetic and wonderful environment. The New York Times even called us recently the most interesting office in the United States from an interior design point of view. Um, but it's incredibly cheap, too. I mean, let's remember, cost of garbage is very low, in fact, negative. And we extend this metaphor uh, outside as well. So we're in a uh, a very tough part of the United States. We're in Trenton, New Jersey, which is one of the most dangerous cities in the U.S. And uh, um, there's a big graffiti element, you know, in in the city. And so we've opened up our all of our buildings that anyone can come paint whenever they want, anything they want. And quite literally outside right now are graffiti artists painting our walls. Uh, And of course it gets a little bigger on the weekends, but almost every week or two, we come to an office where everything on the, on the wall is brand new. And it creates a wonderful connection to the community in a very high crime environment. We've never had crime. Um, And also it's a chameleon building, you know, every day uh, or, you know, it's uh, new art is on the walls, which is just wonderful and exciting. And I think this is the beauty of purposeful business is the purpose is actually a benefit, not a cost, right? You save money or make money on it. It's not something you have to invest into if you really honor the purpose.
2: In 2019, TerraCycle used Regulation A to create a public offering to raise funds.
1: We're probably going to do an entire episode on reggae offerings at some point because they are powerful tools for social enterprises and just, frankly, quite interesting. But for now, we just wanted to hear TerraCycle's story on
0: it. So, I think it was two years ago now, um, we raised $20 million uh, for TerraCycles US Enterprise. And we did that through a regulation A plus offering, which is basically a, a crowdfunding for equity, if you simplify it. And it was a phenomenal uh, success. I mean, we were really surprised we were able to bring in that much capital. Um, and it allowed us to access. A very large pool of investors. I think over a thousand investors joined uh, up with TerraCycle. And so we may do that in the future again, because we had great success with it. And what I also liked about it a lot is that it allows me to take my compliance organization, you know, my finance team, my legal team on a test drive, because now we do have to file with the SEC every six months, not every quarter, but we do now pretty diligent um, uh, uh, filing. And so if we were to go public in the future, which is definitely something we are thinking about, um, it, we know that our organization is able to handle the uh, the back office uh, work that's involved in compliance. Yeah, I think the reggae uh, uh, vehicle is a really exciting vehicle for, well, any enterprise, but especially also purposeful or impact uh, uh, investment. Because there's a lot of retail investors that are interested in investing in impact organizations, but there's relatively few public companies that are true impact organizations. I mean, you have companies like Beyond Meat or Oatly uh, or ThreadUp, but they're not incredibly common. Uh, And so there's a very small universe where a retail investor can invest. And uh, through a Regulation A offering, you can be a retail investor investing in uh, uh, companies that are not yet public, but effectively in that that way. So you don't have to be an accredited investor. You can make small investments. For us, the minimum investment was $700. And then uh, uh, so it's a great way to create that crowdfunding beyond what like a Kickstarter does, where you can pre-sell products or pre-sell services, but you can't sell equity.
2: And with that, I wanted Tom to explain the role that he thinks financial advisors should play in ensuring that investor dollars are going towards companies that align with their values.
0: I think there's a huge responsibility, uh, not just a role, but a responsibility on financial advisors to really help steer investors when they want to invest in the impact space and and this is important because if, if you're just going to be a laxadaisical financial advisor and your and your uh, client asks you hey I want to put some of my money into impact you may go to an impact mutual fund or uh, or one of these sort of collection of companies where it may be as trite as if the company had a sustainability report they qualify and uh, what is exciting right now is there are true organizations out there that are, like TerraCycle, entirely focused on impact. And financial advisors should be really careful on what they recommend as an impact organization versus one that is maybe just beginning their thought process on sustainability, but as an overall enterprise, are far from impactful in a positive way. Um, and I think there's a real onus on financial advisors to brush up on this and learn and uh, be educated uh, uh, so that their investors can vote for the future they want with their investment capital.
2: Any tips for advisors to make sure what they're recommending really is top notch?
0: Um, no, it's their job to get educated. So, so take the effort, the time and be educated, uh, and, uh, don't do a shortcut, which would be just a green mutual fund where literally you have companies that are pretty horrendous in there and there aren't just in there for one random little tiny activity they may have done. So there is no shortcut, but that's why we pay financial advisors is to do the work and the homework.
1: Loop and TerraCycle are super inspiring companies. Their model of being for profit and for purpose is the exact crux of this entire podcast. It's tough to start a successful business, much less one with a triple bottom line. So I wanted to know what valuable lessons other social enterprise entrepreneurs could learn from Tom.
0: My biggest learning by far is to, you know, any business is going to serve a stakeholder, right? And stakeholders will either fund the company and pay the bill, or may be critical to, to uh, to its success, somehow their participation makes it critical to their success. So, like you know, Facebook, the users don't pay, but they're critical to advertisers wanting to pay for advertising. Right? There's always these sort of uh, these actors, and what I think is the biggest issue in sustainable enterprise or purposeful enterprise, and it's also how I started and I learned a very painful lesson was that we hope in the sustainable business community that people are going to be better actors than they really are. We are hopeful people will change their behavior. So we talk a lot about behavior change and educating consumers and that that's the the answer. And I even started that way. And I've learned, and it's been painful but very enlightening and has what catalyzed you know straight growth for 20 years now uh, is to accept actors, the stakeholders, for what their true goals are and really play into that. So what do I mean by that is, take the organic food movement. The organic food movement was created to benefit the birds and the bees. But the reason people buy organic food is because of the, uh, 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 the benefit to their personal health. Probably the most selfish reason you could possibly buy organic food it has nothing to do with the birds and the bees, which is why it was invented. And so it's the same thing for us. You know, people like Loop, for example, our reuse platform because it has beautiful packaging and they feel healthier uh, because of it. Not because it's better for the planet. So that's okay. Let's play into that and not worry about um, uh, having people buy it for the reason we invented it. When retailers at TerraCycle run recycling programs, they, in many cases, want it because it helps drive foot traffic into their stores. That's a, you know, to me, a very uninspired reason. It's not because they want to recycle a certain thing, but whatever. If that's the case, let's accept that and play into it. And in all these cases, it's about accepting the way the chess pieces move, then you can really wield them versus hoping for a more utopian state of mind. And uh, I'll just give two other examples. I mean, look at the breakthrough recently in the plant-based protein market uh, with companies like Beyond Meat, which had a phenomenal IPO or uh, uh, Impossible Foods. What is genius about what they did is they said, we're not going to, you know, uh, preach about animal cruelty or about, you uh, environmental impact due to the huge amount of meat consumption that is out there. We're just going to make a burger that tastes frickin' great and sell it in fact beside the meat burgers and not do any of that and they've exploded and now Burger King to McDonald's carries their products. Electric cars. Right. Uh, It used to be people bought Priuses because entirely to show off that they care about the environment. Now electric cars are fundamentally winning and they're going to completely destroy petrol cars. Because they're just better vehicles, they're faster, they have higher acceleration, and they're, and they're just playing into what people want in a car, which is a better car. And uh, that is the critical, I think, learning for me in sustainable enterprise is we really have to play into the basic goals and desires of the stakeholders um, and not to do it because it's the right thing to do or to be preachy or too utopian because you'll get the meeting, but you'll never get the deal if, uh, if that's how you approach it.
2: That made me wonder whether Tom's seen any change in consumer behavior over his two decades in this business. Clearly, sustainability is on more people's minds now than 20 years ago. Just look at the organic food aisles in every grocery store. Or the fact that a financial publication has an ESG podcast. Surely there must be some great change afoot.
0: It's still fundamentally, I think, because of selfish reasons. I think consumers are looking more and more for a sustainable choice, but, and this is the key, that sustainable choice still has to fulfill their selfish goals. So what do I mean by this is, you know, many times people ask the proverbial question, will a consumer pay more for an eco product? And I think that's a false question. You know, the way I would say it is first, the consumer wants there to be convenience. We are first and foremost driven by convenience. Then when the convenience is there, we give permission to hear what the features and benefits of the product are. And sustainability is absolutely a feature and a benefit uh, for some. And then we ask ourselves, are those features and benefits priced at a reasonable price? And if they are, then we purchase it. And that's the, uh, the way I would construct any offering. Uh, and that's frankly the same if it's B2B or B2C, it won't make a difference.
1: What does it feel like to create one of the namesake brands in sustainability? Tom's been featured in numerous major publications to celebrate the work of TerraCycle, so I was honored that he would be willing to be a guest on our humble pod.
0: But what's it like to be in his shoes? I feel incredibly proud of what uh, we have done as a team and uh, continue to do. Uh, it's, it's so inspiring, you know, being in New Zealand and seeing our logo on packaging of, on things that were not recyclable before and just so many examples. Um, I will say, though, that what gives me pause is that the issue is so gargantuanly big and getting bigger every day. So we need more people uh, creating uh, purpose-driven organizations, and we need more investors investing in those areas. And how do we make impact investment not a growing concern but a still small percentage of investors' portfolio to it's the only thing people invest in? And it really is the only type of startup a entrepreneur creates, one that is purpose first and does the purpose at a profit. We are so behind on how much volume of these type of ideas have to be out there and how big they need to be. Now, I'm thrilled to be a part of it, but uh, it's a big invitation for many people to join, join the cause.
2: So I am definitely thinking more about my consumption of everything from clothes to food since we started working on this particular episode. After talking with Tom and TerraCycle, I went to the firm's website and I noticed that some of the products are part that are part of its recycling program, my household regularly consumed. So now I'm collecting our chip bags from a company called Late July and I'll use the label that TerraCycle sent me to ship them off so that my household can collect points. And for each of these shipments, these points get added together to create a charitable donation. And I have to say it's incentivized me to choose the late July brand. And it doesn't hurt that it also makes some awesome jalapeno lime tortilla chips.
1: I've been looking forward to this SDG since we started on this podcast, because it feels like a goal that we can all take part in quite easily. Every goal is going to take players of all sizes to accomplish, right? From governments to multinational corporations, from private equity to private citizens. Some of our episodes have uh, maybe felt a bit top-heavy, though, right? Looking at institutional investors who can throw around big dollars or big impact investments. But there are, relatively speaking, so few of these folks And so this goal always struck me as being one for the people. Everything Tom spoke about today bears this out. It's about how can we vote with our purchases and habits to both consume less and to nudge companies to provide more sustainable options. In my own life over the past 12 months or so, uh, even before this podcast, I've moved away almost completely from purchasing any clothing that's not made from either organic cotton or recycled materials. Some brands like Prana, Cotopaxi, and Pact, to name a few. And uh, if anyone from those companies is listening, yes, I'd love to have you on the podcast. Come and join us. But like Tom says, the silver bullet is not just to buy things that are more sustainable, but to buy fewer things. So while my initial handmade mask sewing skills were quite, quite frankly utter shit, I may need to pick up that needle and thread and learn how to repel the hole in my jeans instead of
0: buying a new pair. Two things give me give me hope. Um, one is I know in my heart that you know nature will be okay, right? Uh, uh, nature is phenomenally resilient. It's lived through huge amount of length of time, billions of years. It has gone through mass extinctions. We're, you know the Earth will be fine, um, and humanity. What gives me you know that's long term hope short term hope is humanity is at its best and it's the most ingenious most creative when it's under real pressure and so you know we are under real pressure and growing environmental pressure and i'm just uh, very hopeful that this will put us at our best it's too bad that this is what has to happen for us to shine but we tend to shine as humanity when we're faced with real adversity
1: We'd like to thank our guests for joining us today, Tom Zaki from TerraCycle. Special thanks as well to our intrepid editor, Angelica Hester, for keeping this show ticking along. Please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple, and leave a review. We'd love your feedback. We want to know what you like and what you think needs improving. If you know of an impact story that we need to tell, please send it our way. Because today's episode has to do with everyday things that we can all do, We'd also love to hear about how you vote sustainably with your dollars or your habits. Let us know. I'm on Instagram at TheLamCo and Liz is at Liz Skinner underscore. Or tweet me at SlimSlam or Liz at SkinnerLiz. Our email is podcasts at investmentnews.com. Remember folks, life is an adventure, so you might as well make an impact.